Uh, so um, we have a picture. If we can pull up this picture, it is a picture of Picture Lake. You may have seen this picture. It's a very famous picture. It's a very photographed spot. Uh, and I have a big picture. I have a big photograph of Picture Lake over my desk. Uh, Sherry gave it to me on my 40th birthday. This is taken. This is in Washington State, and uh, it is taken on Mount Baker at about 8,000 uh, feet above. It, the mountain is actually over 12,000, but it's taken at 8. And you're looking at Mount Shuxon, which um, is obviously one of the, a, a sister mountain right next to it. And I have this picture above my desk because when I was a younger man, I climbed both of these mountains. Uh, I got some friends two summers in a row, about... Um, uh, a dozen friends, we hired some guides, and we had them take us uh, to summit these two mountains. And it was fascinating, fun, challenging time, and I learned a lot. And I want to I share one observation, and it came from the first climb we made, which was Mount Baker. So these are technical climbs, so you got to have, you know, an ice axe, you got to rope up, you're on glaciers, you got to worry about crevasses, you got crampons, you got to go to snow school, you got to do all that. And when you're making a climb like this, there were three-day ascents. When you make a climb like this, you hike in the first day. The second day, you, you, your goal is to get up to a base camp and set up camp there. And then um, you go to bed early, right after dinner, because you wake up at about 1 o'clock in the morning to make the, the assault on the peak. Because what you want to do is get... You want to you wanna get to the peak at about 8 or 9 in the morning, and you want to get off the top of the mountain as quickly as you can. We were climbing in August, and so it was cold, but as it warms up, then snow starts to melt, snow conditions change, you get into ice, you get into other things, and so you always leave about 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, while we were roped up, there were two teams of us, uh, mountain climbing is a very solitary event because you need to have about uh, 10 feet between you and the next person that you're roped up to because if they step in a crevasse and start to go down, you've got to have at least a second or so before you go, oh my goodness, they're going down. I've got to go into this arrest position to stop them from pulling me down that hole as well. So you're by yourself. You, you know, you're, there's somebody uh, 10, 20 feet ahead of you, and there's somebody 10, 20 feet behind you, but, but it's basically, it's very quiet. It's dark. You can, of course, see all the stars in the sky. It's majestic. It's wonderful. Uh, but I had a problem on this first climb. After five or six hours, I started to get a headache. And I eventually diagnosed this headache as being lack of coffee because there was no coffee on the mountain. And at one o'clock in the morning, it had not occurred to me that I should have a cup of coffee. And so now as we're climbing up this mountain, I'm getting this headache and I'm going, I'm addicted to coffee and this is now I'm going to have this headache until I get some caffeine. Well, fortunately, you're stopping, eventually you're stopping about every 10 minutes because you got a 50-pound pack, and it's just like climbing stairs for seven or eight hours, and you're, you're, the air is thin, and your quads are dying, and so you make about 10 steps, and then you stop. And one of these stops, I pulled my pack off, and I reached into one of the zippered pouches, and I pulled out, this is 25 years ago, I pulled out some Folgers freeze-dried coffee crystals. 
Uh, this is before Via. This is, I mean, and Folgers freeze-dried coffee is bad in the best of conditions. But uh, this would be the worst of conditions because there isn't any time for me to get out of, you know, the little Coleman stove and fire it up and boil water. I'm just, I'm just thinking, okay, the, the, I, I need caffeine. This is medicine. Medicine doesn't taste good. You just, I just need two tablespoons of this and I'll be good. So I just choke down two tablespoons and I'm eating as much snow as I can. It's horrible. But I go, okay, that'll, that'll do it. Except it doesn't. So um, we summit a few hours later and have a great time. And then we come down and we come, of course, you can go down much faster. It's more dangerous, but you go down much faster. We get all the way down past base camp. We get off the glacier, which is a big moment because now you can take off the ropes. You take off the crampons. You, you can get rid of all this stuff. Now you're just on a big hike. And everybody's happy because the danger is over. But I go to the guide and I said, I'm in trouble because this headache is the worst headache I've ever had. And we've got another 8 to 10 hours to hike to get back to the car. And I said, I, I don't think I can make it. And uh, he looked at me and he says, well, have you taken anything for it? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have. Uh, I think it's a caffeine headache, but I took a couple tablespoons of Folgers freeze-dried coffee crystals. And he looks at me for a second and he says, you're dehydrated. He says, have you been drinking water every 15 minutes, like I said? And I'm like, mm, no. Uh, he says, you're dehydrated. And then I, and I think, okay, so I was dehydrated, and what I did is I took these crystals, which probably sucked every molecule of water in my body towards them. And so I had this very odd experience of drinking like a half gallon of water and, and still being thirsty. It was just like, wow, I'm really dehydrated. So I share that to say this. It's important to understand what's wrong with you before you try and figure out how to fix it. And we are going to see in this, uh, in this Christmas carol that we're looking at an explanation of what's wrong with us and an explanation of how to fix it. And it is, a, it is a great gift to us in that sense because it understands the issue that we have. So this is the third week of Advent. This is the third song. We did uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We also did um, uh, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. In one sense, those were both more Advent hymns than Christmas hymns, so they're more longing, they're more looking forward, they're slower, minor key as opposed to we, we, Hark the Herald Angels Sing starts to get us into a Christmas mode, more celebratory, bigger music. So this hymn was written by Charles Wesley, one of the Wesley brothers. So John and Charles, quite famous. Uh, they're Brits. They went to Oxford University in the early 1700s. And while they were at Oxford, they formed the Holy Club which was a club for, for people to get together early in the morning for prayer and Bible study, and they did a bunch of work among, uh, among orphans and the poor. When they graduated from Oxford, they were, um, they were ordained in the Church of England. Uh, we call the Church of England in the United States the Episcopal Church because when the uh, Revolutionary War was going on, you didn't want to be a member of the Church of England when we're at war with England. So, so they joined as clergy for the Anglican, the Church of England, the Episcopal Church. And then 
uh, John, the older of the two, came over to the United States before it's the United States, and he, and he sort of holds meetings up and down the east coast of, uh, of the country, raising money for an orphanage that he had built in Georgia. Then he goes back to England. He's a little discouraged at the way things are going. He goes back to England, and then, and only then, does he come to faith in Christ. So he is at a meeting uh, at Altersgate. It's a famous moment, uh, and I've, I've been there. I've visited this spot. So he's at a meeting at Altersgate where someone is reading the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary to the book of Romans. <clears throat> and you might remember that Luther had a similar experience. Luther had decided to become a priest, had gone through uh, his training for that. He had then become a priest. He had gone on to get his doctorate in theology, and he was a professor of the Bible before he comes to faith in Christ. Right? He is studying the book of Romans in Greek. He had only ever read it in Latin before this. He misunderstood the whole idea of righteousness. He felt like he had to be good enough. He misdiagnosed his problem. He thought I've got to be better. And the way forward is for me to work harder. I need to be more religious. I need to pray more. I need to fast more. I need to do more good things because that's what I need to do in order to fix my, my issue. And when he read in Romans and understood for the first time that the righteousness that saves us, the goodness that saves us, the way we get reconciled to God is a, an alien righteousness. It's not our own it's Christ's that gets credited to our account, imputed to us, transferred to our sort of metaphysical bank account. Our moral debt is paid by somebody else's payment. He has this breakthrough, Luther does, and understands for the first time the good news. <laughs> the good news isn't you got to keep trying harder and harder and harder and harder. The good news is God loves you. God has made a way back for you. Jesus Christ, God's son, comes down to die in our place and pay our moral debt. Luther has this breakthrough. He writes about it in his commentary to the Romans. John Wesley hears this and finally gets it. Right? He, so again, he's been, he started the Holy Club. He's been at prayer meetings. He's been at Bible studies. He's been, he's been helping the poor. He's gone as a missionary to the United States. He's raised all this money for orphans. It's only then does he understand the gospel. And so John has a breakthrough. Charles has a breakthrough. They go on to, uh, to plant all kinds of churches, hold all kinds of, uh, both in, in, in uh, Great Britain, and then they come over here, plant all kinds of churches. They had a particular formula for planting churches. They had a method, and so they become known as the Methodists, and they end up founding the Methodist church. John is the leader. He's the preacher. Charles is, uh, is the song leader. Charles writes 6,000 hymns. He writes, and can it be, oh, 4,000 tongues to sing. He writes a number of songs that you might know. Among them, he writes, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, he doesn't ever write the music. 
He just writes the lyrics. And when he wrote the lyrics to this uh, particular, uh, he called it a Christmas poem. When he wrote the lyrics uh, or this poem, uh, he argued that the music should be very somber. And so it was hooked up to very somber music, and that is, is what it was for the next hundred years. Uh, after he died, there's a guy by the name of Cummings who, who took Wesley's lyrics and uh, music written by Mendelssohn, a Jew who had left very explicit instructions that he did not want his music used by Christians. So this guy took, took Wesley's lyrics and Mendelssohn's music and put them together, and we get uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing that we know today. And uh, there's four verses that we're going to sing. One of them you probably are not familiar with. But, but they're all very profoundly theologically rich. So if you've got the card and you want to take it out, um, we're going to sing it in just a minute. But let me just frame this for you. So stanza one, verse 1, the first line, Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Okay, so hark. Uh, means pay attention. You, you know that. It's, a, it's an old word. Nobody uses it today. And in fact, if you were to use it and say, hark, um, people would be a little bit uh, confused or think you were very weird. Um, I would argue we don't have quite enough punctuation here. It should be uh, in quotation marks. Hark, end of quotation marks, the herald angels sing. Because what we're, what we're learning here is that there were angels who had a particular assignment. They were announcers, okay? They were heralds. They were MCs, and they say to the shepherds, hey, pay attention, we've got news here. And it's worth noting that they're talking to the shepherds because the shepherds are at the very bottom of the societal food chain. They're out at night watching their flocks, not because they have the night shift, but because there is no union and they work 24-7, seven days a week. And they don't make very much money. If you grew up to be a shepherd, likely something went wrong because this is not a job that you wanted. And yet, this is who the angels are sent to. Right? It's not, they're not sent to the bosses, they're not sent to the owners, they're not sent to the powerful, they're not sent to the politicians. They're sent to the lowest people who are out in the flock, out in the fields. So the angels announce, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so as um, Luke 2 was read, this is, this is all a reflection of what is happening in Uh, Luke 2, what is being reported in Luke 2. So they announce glory. The the angels have seen so much, right? In 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 10 to 12, we're told that they marvel (laughs) at at Christ and the gospel and what he does. They've, They've seen God the Father. They've seen creation. They've seen all this stuff. But what they're marveling at, and they're trying to get the attention of these shepherds, they're saying, this is an amazing moment. Glory to the newborn king. By the way, the first, the first line that we sing was changed. So when, when Wesley wrote it, he wrote, Hark how all the welkin rings. 
Welkin is a very archaic term, and it means sort of the antechamber of heaven or the high sky, sort of an overlap zone between heaven and the high sky. And so he says, all the, all the Welkin is singing. And Whitfield, George Whitfield, who was a contemporary of the Wesley brothers, who along with John Wesley will be some of the, one of the guys that preaches and the great awakening happens in this country. Uh, Whitfield said, <laughs> rolling his eyes, there aren't five people on the planet besides Charles Wesley who knows what the word Welkin means. And so he crossed it out and changed it to hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So this is a little bit of an interpretation, interpretive move by Charles Wesley to say the announcement that we find in Luke 2, um, peace on earth and favor uh, and favor upon uh, those are good news upon those in whom God's favor rests. So he changes that a little bit and says that the, those to whom God's favor rests are those who have been reconciled with God. So God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, so join our voices. We're being invited to join our voices with the angels because it wasn't just the herald angels that showed up and said to the, the shepherds, the son has been born. Then there's a whole, Luke 2 tells us a whole chorus of angels show up and begin to sing. So we're being invited Join our voice with the angelic hosts proclaim Christ, the Messiah, is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Verse 2. Verse 1 sort of sets the scene. Verse 2 talks a little bit more in depth about who Christ is. Christ by highest heaven adored. So God the Father, God the Spirit, the angel, everyone in heaven loves this baby. They know the backstory. They know that Jesus, who has shown up now as a baby, an infant in weakness, Jesus is fully God, has been fully God from eternity past. You know, everything that's created, we're told in John 1, everything that was created was created through Christ. So he has now humbled himself and showed up as a baby. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Lord when it's as it's written here, capital L, little o, little r, little d, is a title. In our English Bibles, it is often spelled capital L, and then, just to confuse you, capital O, but a smaller case O. Capital O, capital R, capital D, all smaller case. That is the name, that is I am, that is Yahweh, and, and that's how that gets translated. That's how that's written in our Bible. This means the master, Christ, the everlasting master. Late in time, behold him come. Okay, late because they have been waiting forever for Christ. So the first announcement that a Savior would be born is found in Genesis 3. So at the time of the fall, the promise is made. I'm going to send someone who is going to fix things. I am going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send someone born of woman who is going to, who's going to defeat evil. And so from Genesis 4 on, throughout the entire Old Testament, people have been waiting. 
Everybody's been waiting. It, it, so Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Are, are those the promised ones? No. And then Abraham is waiting for a son. Is, the, is Isaac the promised one who is going to fix things? No. And, and so you just keep going page after page. When is this one who is going to fix things going to show up? So late in time. It took a long time. Late in time. Behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. So I posted on my, um, my blog this week a sermon I preached a few years ago because around this time people will often um, sort of roll their eyes and say, you know, uh, virgin birth, it's just sort of like, can't we be adults? I mean, virgins don't have children, and it seems like the reason that, that, that we've got this idea of a virgin birth is because they're sort of scandalized by sex and and so I, a few years ago, I preached a sermon to say, no, that's not it at all. And far from being tripped up over the virgin birth and seeing it as something to be embarrassed by, when you see it in its context, when you see how it is, it is introduced in Genesis 3, when you see how it's developed throughout the entire Bible, when you see why Jesus bypasses the stain of sin and has a, this, this virginal conception when you were remembering that Jesus' life doesn't begin at conception, he is eternal, so he's just, he's just showing up, it, it, is, it becomes something much more powerful. So if, if you're inclined to be um, troubled by this claim, I would, I would direct you there to read that. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. So let's get the claim right. What? So this is, a, this is an explanation, uh, this is an effort to capture the, what we refer to as the hypostatic union, the, the, the dual nature of Christ. So there are mysteries in the faith. These are not Agatha Christie type mysteries. These are, these are profound claims that go beyond our ability to comprehend. So the Trinity, God is one God and three persons. Okay, we can talk about it, but we can't grasp that, right? A finite mind can't comprehend an infinite God. In a like manner, Christ, the claim at Christmas, what we're celebrating is that Jesus, who is eternal, God, fully God, at the incarnation, when he puts on human flesh, karnos is the Greek word for flesh, At the incarnation, while remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. It's not that he was God and now he's man and then he'll go back to being God. It's not that he's God in a human form. It's not that he's half God, half man. It's not that he bounces back and forth between being God and man. But that while remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. That's what happens at the incarnation. Now, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we're told that when this happens, he puts his glory. So and in Philippians 2, we'll say, Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. Somehow, he, he puts the dimmer switches on his glory. He puts some aspects of his deity in a blind trust and chooses not to access them. We can't, we can't understand this, but, but as a baby... He is, he is not fully 
uh, omniscient like he will be later on. There, and his glory is not being displayed in its fullness. So, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail uh, the incarnate deity. Deity means God, so the God in the flesh. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the name, Hebrew word, for God with us. Jesus is God with us. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Verse 3. And this sort of goes into the, this gives us a a bit of the gospel. So, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Uh, So he's not born on earth. This is, he's, he's, as man, he is born, but he is eternal. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Okay, he is, he is uh, light. He makes that claim. He brings eternal life. Uh, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. So he thinks nothing for you, for me. He thinks nothing of setting aside the rights, privileges, honors, glory, power, of heaven to show up in a stable and die. He lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. He's on a rescue mission. He shows up. Jesus is born to die, not simply to die. He perfectly fulfills the law. He teaches. He helps us understand the nature of God the Father, but he then dies in our place. As a person, he perfectly can represent us uh, on the cross. He perfectly can be my, my substitute sacrifice. But as God, his death has eternal value. And so where we see that, that, that in the Old Testament, you, every person had to have an animal that was sacrificed for them, right? Every, every sin has to be atoned for by a different person dying. Now we have the infinite value of the death of Jesus Christ, so he can die in our place, um, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth. We get eternal life because of Christ, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, born again because of Christ. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So I just remind you that... Um, the gospel, the good news, is not that if you try hard enough, you just might make it. Right? That if you work really hard, if you're really religious, if you, if, you, if you read your Bible, if you memorize scripture, if you're kind, if you really, really work at this, that you just might make it. That's not the gospel. That's religion. The gospel is uh, that if we place our faith in Christ, the work of Christ gets credited to our account. And then we will do good works, right? So it's, it's not faith plus good works equals salvation. It's faith equals salvation plus good works. Because faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. If, if we really have yielded our life to Christ, then our life starts to change and we start to say, I should actually go to the end of the line. I should actually care for other people. I should actually be different than I am. And so this is just saying, (laughs) God sent his son. Eternal son becomes one of us. God sent his son. He was born that we don't have to die. We don't have to pay our debt. 
Verse 4, come, desire of nations, come. This is the one that you, you probably aren't familiar with, but um, uh, this is a verse we're going to sing. Come, desire of nations, come. Desire of nations is a reference to Christ out of Malachi. So it's one of the many Old Testament allusions to Jesus. We saw this in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel also. So come, desire of nations. Come, Jesus, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Come live in my heart. God, come, Spirit of God, come and dwell me. Uh, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. So this is Genesis 3 language. Um, so in Genesis 3, at the time of the curse, God says, I'm going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send one born of woman. So literally, in the Hebrew, what it says is, I'm going to send the sperm of woman. Now, biology 101, women don't have sperm, right? Women have an egg, males have a sperm, uh, and, and so this is an early allusion to the virgin birth. Right? There will not be a male involved in the conception of this child. And so what, because... Uh, because to say the sperm of woman is a little bit awkward and perhaps a little bit scandalous. So what we get is we get offspring of the woman, we get seed of the woman, you get all these different translations that sort of tone it down a little bit. But in the Greek, uh, the word is spermatos that translates the Hebrew. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but we've got a Greek translation of the Hebrew as well. Clearly, everybody understands this is a reference to Christ. Uh, so rise the woman's conquering seed. So seed is sperm. This is Jesus. Come Jesus, the victorious, conquering child of the woman, the one that's been promised. Bruise in us the serpent's head. So the, the statement that gets made in Genesis 3 is, I'm going to send the rescuer, right, and he will defeat evil. Evil will strike his heel. And sometimes it says strike, sometimes it says evil will bruise his heel, but he will crush evil's head. So that's what this is referencing. Bruise in us the serpent's head, right? Defeat evil in us. Now display thy saving power. Ruin nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join. Thine to ours and ours to thine. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. This is a profoundly theological, profoundly rich Christmas hymn. Uh, we're going to sing it now. I'm going to pray for us and then we will sing. Lord God Almighty, we, we thank you. We praise you for the gospel. We thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for uh, woman's conquering. Uh, seed. We thank you that, that in the fullness of time you sent your son, born of woman, to live, to love, to teach, to model, and to die and to conquer death that we could get uh, second life. So um, thank you, Lord God, for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your work on the cross on our behalf. We pray all this in Christ's name.